This podcast contains language that is not appropriate for children. But if your child isn't a child, they deserve full body autonomy, and what they do with their free time is none of your damn business in the first place. This week's episode is brought to you by Jeffrey Smith. You know how sometimes you want to create an organization whose name means absolutely nothing? You know, when you're not an actual institute, you're not responsible about how you disseminate information, and you're not in favor of technology? Why not create a group called the Institute for Responsible Technology? Well, that's exactly what Jeffrey Smith did. So here's a shout out to being intellectually honest and not being a douchebag. Jeffrey Smith, he was the guy who was all about labeling GMOs, yeah? And then he comes out after all of this stuff lately, labeling GMOs was never the end goal for us. It was a tactic. I, what? I mean, he like he he wrote this, like brazenly put it out there. Labels make it easier like for shoppers to make non-GMO choices, like people avoid GMOs. Like it, it just, it no, he didn't want them labeled. No. And th- that speaks to the technology part, I feel like he's, he's not, he, maybe he doesn't, I don't know, maybe somebody like posts all these things on YouTube and, uh, on his website for him. And he's not aware that the internet exists and that like one of the people that he, he, he wrote this letter to like, would be like, Oh, this is, this is a little fucked up. Like he should probably not be saying this because I mean, we all know that's why you're like pushing it. Like it's everybody knows what it what yeah. it's like. Right. But, but he just, I mean, Hey, it was a pretty ballsy slash ridiculously dumb move. It, it required a certain level of testicular fortitude to put that forward. But we have better things to talk about than him. Like way better things. We, we yeah. do. And, and on that note, <laughs> hello and thank you for listening to the science enthusiast podcast. My name is Dan. And as always, I am joined by my good friend, Natalie. Hey Dan. Hey everybody. How you doing tonight? Nice. I, I'm doing very well. Um, it's it's getting a little late as we're recording this, so I'm still alive and getting slightly tired. How are you? Um, I'm I'm here. Yeah, but but I'm I'm happy to be here because as always we have interesting stuff that we're talking about and. Indeed, we do. Uh, tonight we have Vance Crow, who is the director of Millennial Engagement at Monsanto in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, he's also worked for the World Bank and an NPR affiliate in the past. Vance holds an undergraduate degree in communications from Marquette University and a master's degree in cross-cultural negotiations from the Seton Hall School of Diplomacy. So Vance, thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. And I just want to get started with, um, I mean, a question that you probably get fairly frequently is just about your job title in general. You are the director of millennial engagement at Monsanto. Um, can you define millennial engagement to us, Dan and I, who, and I guess yourself, who's also a millennial, maybe by definition? <laughs> yeah, just just barely, right? Like, yeah, uh, like we're, I'm, we're, I'm may, we're maybe right. millennials, maybe. I mean, is is a is it just a Bernie voter? Is that how we define millennials? <laughs> so when I first came into the job, I was like, hey, we have got to change this job title, right? This is a really off-putting <laughs> um, title because nobody really likes to be thought of as a, as a demographic to be engaged with. And, and I know that as soon as, I, um, so, as, soon as somebody hears that I'm going to be somewhere um, at a conference or speaking somewhere, they think there's just going to be some guy in skinny jeans that's trying to impress <laughs> us, right? And so um, at first I was like, you know, we got to change this. But then uh, we started thinking about, well, what is the purpose of the job? And the the purpose of the job is we know that there are ideas that float around and crash into one another almost completely randomly, like out in the ocean. But that eventually some of those ideas, because of social media, because of tribalism, because of networks and the way that ideas spread, those ideas start going into a pattern and maybe start having some sort of semblance of order. And as that order builds up, it starts to become a big wave. And that wave just out in the ocean crashes over society, right? And it doesn't become society, but it definitely changes it. And because for so long, Monsanto was way out of conversations, they weren't talking with the general public, they, we really had an emphasis on how do we get to the top of that wave where the newest ideas, the ones that are going to change the world the most, are going on? Where are people talking about interesting things, building interesting things? And how can we go find those conversations that we're invited into to participate in and find out what people are curious about, what they want to talk about, what they're angry about, and and what they have questions about? And so that's my job. I spend my time trying to figure out where new ideas are diffusing into society and and help the company uh, open up and, and start conversations there. 
And so, you know, so obviously you want to get these conversations started and continuing in just a productive dialogue. Is there a, like, is there a stigma that you feel like a challenge to start the conversations just because of the word Monsanto? You know, I think that actually, and I wouldn't have thought this until I got there. So first of all, we kind of all have this sense, particularly if you came from the skeptics world at all, that everybody knows who Monsanto is and everybody has feelings about them. But if you actually go out and do research, so when we first, it was only in the last two and a half years that we made a coordinated effort to say, hey, we are going to go out and talk with consumers because we don't sell anything at all directly to consumers, right. uh, nothing at all. We only sell to farmers. So we started doing research and it turns out less than 50% of the U.S. population has even heard of Monsanto. They don't even, most people, or about 50%, have never heard of us, don't know anything about us, don't have strong feelings one way or another. So when you subtract that out and then you, and you say like, well, when I go out and meet people, the, the joke I often tell somebody is when I meet somebody at a conference, right, you shake their hands, everybody's talking for a little bit, and they realize like, oh, this is an interesting conversation, I forgot that guy's name, and they look down at my name tag and then they read that it says Monsanto, they like all of a sudden take a step back and then they like kind of look over their shoulder, like to the left and then to the right. And then they go, I don't have a problem with Monsanto, but I have a friend that really hates you guys. Yeah. Like everybody and, knows somebody who has a, yeah. Right. But it's very rare that somebody is like, you know, immediately upset or angry yeah. or, or, and, and so then like for the most part, I would say like 90 to 95% of the, the, the rest of the conversations, once that happens is curiosity. So tell me about GMOs. Um, you know, are you guys really doing all the things that people are saying? So I encounter, I think, a lot less anger and frustration than people imagine that I would, even more than I imagine. And in, in fact, like in some ways, it's anticlimactic. Well, well that, it, that, that's actually refreshing. Yeah. Yeah, and also, and also, yeah, and also, you're 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 face to face instead of dealing with somebody commenting. In, in, on a post on the internet, so that 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 adds yeah, my Twitter a, a feed isn't different quite that polite <laughs> dynamic. <when> I... <laughs> right. So, so what I'm hearing you say is that you guys are are responsible for the uh, the the largest algae bloom that's uh, happened up in, uh, up in the Great Lakes, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what I, that's what I'm reading, even though the uh, paper itself doesn't say anything about that. But uh, at any rate, um, so. Uh, another question that that's uh, come up in something that happened, I think that was, that was even just as recently as last week, um, the the whole labeling issue. Um, what I, I guess, be you know, being involved with that, what are your thoughts on labeling and and how how does that? What, what do you think to the average consumer that does not, you know, even under, know what Monsanto is, like like you said, or half the consumers don't. Like what what is what is what do you think that means to that that person that sees so, the label. Uh, you know the the labeling standards that you're talking about there was just a national standard passed and then signed into law or or um is about to be and um in the white house and we have every indication that's going to happen and so from monsanto's perspective we have always been um in opposition to mandatory labels and the reason i think is pretty one that a lot of skeptics can understand that if you mandate that there must be a label that says these foods are different than those foods because these have been genetically modified, you're, you're potentially sending a signal to consumers that don't really have very much information that there's something to be aware of because, you know, a nutrition label or things that are, are put on there like allergens signal to people, hey, there's something for you to know about. But, you know, genetic modification really doesn't have any kind of significant information to people. And so we were concerned that by having a mandatory label, um, you'd send the wrong message to people. But when Vermont passed their law as an individual state, um, they ended up being able to really have a major impact on the entire food system because retailers would be producing food that maybe would be going to the Northeast, but if it happened to cross over into Vermont and be sold at a small store, um, then that company would be liable and there would be lawsuits and there would be um, you know, potential accusations, hey, I should have known that there were GMOs in this and they weren't. And so we're going to start a class action lawsuit or, or go to legal action. And so at that point, um, we said, okay, if we need to, then we're going to support a national standard. Um, one that says this will be uniform so that Vermont can't have their 
um, really idiosyncratic laws where certain things are called GMOs, but other things like cheeses are not. Mm -hmm. And instead, we're going to have yeah. one. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Even though, even though and they so, are. so um, we did finally say a good way to compromise would be to have a QR code that if people are interested in finding out more about their food, eventually, and I think the USDA has about two years to, to kind of figure out exactly what's going to go into this. People can scan their food, whether that's either with their smartphone or through a scanner that's actually in the aisle, um, then they'll be able to see a lot more about it. So it'll be vastly more than just, is it GMOs? It'll be talking about what sort of practices were used to, to bring this to production. Yeah. It and, and so what is, I, and I don't know if they've gotten that far with it yet, but what, what kind of information are they going, going to provide and, and who's going to be managing that information or producing that so information? So I think that's still yet to be decided. The law is pretty clear about the, the intent that they want to be able to show more, uh, which I think will show things like how sustainably right. was this produced? Um, so what were the practices, that sort of thing. But the USDA is going to be the one managing that, and, it, and they'll have a big comment period, which is why people that want to use this opportunity, if we are going to have a mandatory system and we are going to have these QR codes, then it'd be good for people to be aware and say, what is actual information that would help me make decisions about food being produced in a way that I think makes the environment um, cleaner or um, produces things more efficiently because if, if people that are interested don't get involved, then it will only be the people trying to drive an agenda and we will end up with less good information than we started. Right. With. right. My, my whole, yeah. And because I can see it becoming an issue of somebody, you know, if, if, if it is the USDA, somebody that, like you said, is agenda driven with, uh, their, their intent say, you know, maybe referring to some nefarious sources or, or something like that, and it's it's just interesting because it's it's in so many like just corn is in so many different products, and is I mean is it going to be the individual companies or is it going to be the uh, you know the the seed company that grew the corn and, and even even then so so many so many questions and like how how specific do you want to go with it do you want to know well this was Monsanto corn or this was you know I mean that's a great point I mean one of, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is. Um, Seed breeding and genetic engineering is incredibly complicated and really expensive, and a lot of companies end up sharing information. So if, for example, Monsanto develops a new um, gene that can be used for a, for a GMO, maybe it's BT or maybe it's a type of uh, you know, Roundup Ready, rather than DuPont or Dow or other companies having to develop that on their own, they'll license that technology and put it into their seeds. But is that something that consumers would need to know or want, I mean, excuse me, want to know? I mean, the level of complication of taking information all the way back to the corn seed, and that doesn't even begin to say, once you've collected that corn, you sell, once you've harvested that corn, you sell it to a grain elevator who then puts, sells it to another company that transports it on barges that then goes to a manufacturing. I mean, it is so complicated right. that, that some of those things would be really onerous. And people say, well, it's just a label. Well, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. Right, because because you don't want to mislabel it. And whoever's buying that seed, you know, may not, you know, they may be mixing it in with corn from uh, other Well, other that's, that's, that an, they, they that's another good from. example. You know, like so, farmers, um, they hedge all the time. So I would say many, if not most, farmers that we sell seeds to, they're always buying some of their seeds from some of our competitors, too, because they want to have diversity of different germplasms and things you, you just wouldn't know right, exactly and, and i think it seems much simpler when you look at it from afar because you don't really have to know the details to have an opinion but yet people have formed such strong opinions about gmos in that it's there's there's this misconception it seems like that people just think gmo means somehow unhealthy and well and even speaking personally like whenever i started like a whole like fitness thing like three or four years ago, started working out more and trying to trying to eat better. I mean, I I just I start I would buy like organic whatever just because it's like I see people who at the store who I think look healthy or that they they look more in shape than I do, and that's what they're eating. And so I'm going to just do what they do. And then you know, as I became more informed on it, it's like, well, there's there's no difference in these, so there's there's no points in. Well, and that in I mean, that's so the like, power. Of marketing ahead, and advertising, right? Yeah, no, because I was just going to say, like, for me, when I go to yeah. the grocery store, like, and because I'm shopping for, like, myself, I'm shopping for kids, like, I want to, 
I want to just be able to look at the label and see kind of nutritionally what, what that product has to offer. Like, and I, I mean, breeding method that, that to me doesn't matter because that, I mean, that doesn't affect the, like the food that we're eating. Like if I, if I buy non GMO chips, like they're still chips. It, and that's the part where like, it's not, it does like just because it has a non GMO project label on it doesn't make it health food. And, but I mean, I think that that comes down to how complicated things like nutrition are mm-hmm. or the things you're talking for, whether that's for your fitness or health or whether that's you're taking care of your kids. It ends up being that people just want really simple rules. Just tell yeah. me something that I can go to and I can hold up a, you know, a, some kind of visor that says this is good for me and this is not good for me. And by Monsanto not being a part of conversations for a really long time, expecting farmers or retailers or whoever else to be a part of those conversations, it became the cultural understanding that um, organic somehow conveyed either more nutrients or grown more environmentally friendly and non-GMO may not be quite as good, but it's a little bit like um, organic light in some ways. And so, you know, we just didn't participate. So we weren't there talking about our role in all of these forms of agriculture. You know, people often associate Monsanto as being um, pro-GMO and only pro-GMO and having nothing to do with organic. But you'd actually be really surprised to find out that a lot of crops that are grown as organic crops come from seeds that are from Monsanto. And we don't sell organic seeds, but when right. you're when you're in the produce aisle, for example, um, if a if a farmer wants to have some variety that's not available in certified organic, then they can turn to the market and say, "Are there any other seeds I can I can buy here?" And they don't have to be certified organic. And so it's it's an interesting world. And so Monsanto is really about how can we help farmers do the best with their land. And and so we don't actually we're not opposed to any of these other forms of agriculture. <clears throat> the thing we're opposed to is the demonization of really smart, um, sophisticated technology for the benefit of a few. Yes. And right. And so you, I mean, in working with farmers and making their lives easier, I mean, sometimes it's, it's hard to, people might not remember that like the food is coming from people who are farming and don't we want their lives and their work to be as easy and productive as possible. Right. For, I mean, for the benefit of everybody, you would hope. Um, yeah, that's that's a point that I I'm I'm interested that you brought that up because a lot of people one of the ways that the activists have driven a narrative is that they have turned farming. You always hear that term factory farms. And mm-hmm. when you look at the power of that meme, they're stripping out the humanity behind the people that are actually growing that food, the people that are out there doing that, that that's their families that live out there, that that's their family's livelihood, that that's the people's time. And so being aware that there are actually human beings out there producing the food that's in all of your grocery stores, whether or not you call that a factory or not is, is, is immaterial because it's all grown by people. Well, that, yeah. Right. Right. And, and they're, 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 it's like, it's as if they're assuming that Monsanto is, the, are the people actually growing these crops? And, and I think that kind of plays into part of the, this, even the stigma of farmers, that farmer, you know, because they're farmers because they're simple and they're not very smart and they, they underestimate that whenever, you know, like, like you said, you know, a far, farmers, you know, have to, you know, intentionally like diversify what they're doing because they're aware of, you know, different issues that different crops may have. And, and I think I read an article uh, a while ago, uh, just, just like soybeans, like from one, one uh, brochure that the, they were looking at had 50 different varieties that eat, you know, each one has its own benefits and risks and things like that to choose from. And, and from talking to uh, Michelle from farm babe, like she, you know, they, they have to like measure different levels of it's all, it's all stuff that obviously I'd, I'm not trained on, but they, you know, they, they are extremely intelligent people. And I think part, part of it is people assuming that, well, farmer, you know, it plays in the whole narrative. Well, farmers are being bullied into buying seeds just from Monsanto or whatever. It's like, that's, that's not the case. They buy it because it's a good product and because it's, it's making, you know, saving the money well, and, and making Vance, them. You, I want to go to what you brought up with like that, this narrative that has been very well crafted, I think by kind of organic and anti-GMO um, advocates or whatever about factory farms and kind of dehumanizing the food production methods, like in our country or whatever. Um, one of uh, 
one of our friends, Jason, who we just recently had on, um, brought up, I think what was a really interesting question, um, just the idea of like, is it possible for kind of grassroots type of organizations like, um, like March Against Myths and stuff like that, and industry, like just say Monsanto, to work together towards creating a better public understanding of biotechnology and agriculture and, you know, kind of the way that the organic industry itself has crafted their super compelling narrative. Um, and, you know, if we can do that without that kind of conflict of interest, shill allegation thing that just gets thrown around. But, um, but yeah, just, I mean, do you have any thoughts about how we can re restructure the narrative? Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's something I spend a great deal of time thinking about, which is how do you build relationships uh, with people like academics or non um, nonprofits or other companies or just community organizations that are authentic, that are um, where people are sharing information and, and coming up with solutions, but don't throw everybody else under the bus or don't make those people exposed to accusations of being a shill or um, really uh, aggressive uses of, of FOIA to, to harass them. And, you know, I don't, I don't really have a great answer, but I do know that um, one of the things that I've become a lot more sensitive to since taking this job is anytime someone tries to tell me a story where there's a really clear hero and a really clear villain, and that, um, that the hero narrative is, is almost always the little guy and they're coming up against the big mm -hmm. bad giant and, <laughs> yeah. um, and that anybody that helps the giant is kind of a, like a rat figure or a, you know, a puppet. And I see this all the time and, and I see it actually among the, even, even communities like the, the skeptics community, you see sometimes the, that we oversimplify what, what is, you know, in the skeptics community, we're looking at what does the evidence tell us is most likely to be true. But in order to be able to make that stuff compelling, we, we want it to be in stories. I mean, even when you guys were talking with Grant Ritchie the other day, he was saying, hey, skeptics and scientists have to get better at telling the story. And I agree with that because that's the way you make memes spread. But at the other hand, it's also really dangerous. And, and I, one of the examples that comes to mind is, um, you know, the, the movie Merchants of Doubt, the documentary that, that skeptics often talk about, like, hey, look, let's show them how the coal industry is like the tobacco mm -hmm. industry. Yeah. So I don't really know the inner workings of any of that, but I do know that the director of that movie is the same director that made Food Inc. And Food Inc. is the is the way that we've watched these really simplified factory farming narratives spread into schools and spread out to really concerned moms and teachers and um and community groups to say, hey, these factory groups are really bad, right? And so I now have become very sensitive to the oversimplification of narratives where there's a really clear villain and a really clear hero, um, whether that's in climate change or it's in agriculture or it's in um, even in, in, in um, things like vaccine research, right? When I'm hearing those stories about, listen to how terrible this person is, I, I tend to try and say, let's slow down this train and make sure what the story I have heard is actually accurate. Just kind of along the lines, I mean, the fact that, you know, Vance, you're probably talking to people who might have some just just a lack of knowledge about GMOs or biotechnology in general. I mean, like what it, like how do you start conversations with people about about GMOs? You know, that's, and, I mean, you just did a great YouTube video, but like, I, I mean, for anyone who hasn't, I mean, seen it. do you do it, do you do it by making fun of them? Like, right yeah, the generally, you know, mocking their beliefs real quick, um, and then telling them how much they don't yeah, know. Just like a one, two punch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Right. And, and, and then they're like, Oh, you, you convinced me. I think the best part about my job is that I spend a whole lot of time around people that are are involved in agriculture but still have the lens of what is fascinating to them so that's one of my favorite questions is to ask people you know what's the thing that you learned about with agriculture that's so amazing or so fascinating and i remember one day when i was just thumbing through when i first took the job i didn't know a ton about genetics and i certainly didn't know about gmos and i didn't even know anything about plant breeding so the way if somebody comes up to me and they ask me like 
you know, tell me about the safety of GMOs. I just try and back the train up a little bit and say, you know what, before we talk about GMOs, can I just tell you what I thought was fascinating about plants in general? Did you know that there was no such thing as um, broccoli growing in the wild? And generally they give me this kind of like weirdish look, you know, kind of, what are you talking about? And then you say, yeah, well, you couldn't just go pick wild broccoli, right? It's not that we found wild broccoli and then started planting it in rows, that in fact, um, humans created broccoli. And we did it from a plant called Brassico olerico, which is this tall, spindly, what would have been a weed at the time. And it had big, uh, rough uh, leaves and it had these like little teeny tiny lateral buds and it had bushy seed pods. And, um, and over time, people that were hunters and gatherers, probably groups of women, although we don't actually know, figured out like, hey, wait, if I take the pollen from this uh, plant over here with the really bushy seed pods, the one that's more than all the rest, and I sprinkle it on this other plant that also has um, bigger than average seed pods, then their children will have the seeds that come from this one will have bigger seed pods. And if I keep doing this, if I keep choosing the ones that have the biggest seed pods, generation after generation, I can eventually select. So that's the only feature that really appears on this plant. And eventually you have broccoli because that's what broccoli is. It's the overexpression of seed pods on, on the Brassico olerica plant. And that same plant, and generally at this point, people's eyes are like completely wide. They can't believe this. And then I say, and this is the <laughs> same plant that we actually get Brussels sprouts. So if you select for those lateral buds, or it's where we mm. get kale, those big leaves that we were talking about. It also is where we get cauliflower and kohlrabi, although I don't actually know what kohlrabi is. I just know it was on the picture. And so when, <laughs> when I expressed to people that thing that fascinated me about where how we domesticated plants, suddenly, without being threatening, I've shifted the, the ground a little bit, right? All of a sudden, they're now able to say, there's a lot that I don't know here, but it isn't threatening, it's fascinating. And from there, then yeah. when you go in and start talking about how precise, instead of slamming together tens of thousands of genes, you're now taking one gene and placing it right in the exact spot that you know it will have this expression. People are much more open to it. So I, t I tend to yeah. try and go a way of widening out what are we talking about so that people have a frame of reference. Well, and, and that, I think, is a great place for, I mean, you, you told a story, but you brought facts. You know, like that, it's an interesting story. Yet it, I mean, it, it happened. It's true. There is no hero, hero or villain. It's broccoli, but like, it is not, the, it's not something that, that most people have probably heard before. And it's kind of disarming to be like, okay, we're just, we're having a conversation about food and about but how I fascinating think, it can be. I think with broccoli, the real hero is cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I, the, and with, with um, stories like that, the best part about them is, Somebody can hear that and they can go tell somebody else. And that's the key, yeah. right? No matter how much evidence you hit with somebody, eventually you can occasionally wear somebody down with evidence where they're like, okay. And then when they go to tell somebody else, they're like, I don't know. The reason we know vaccines are safe is because there's lots and lots of studies, right? Rather than yeah. let me tell you this story that helps illustrate this point, which is what we were saying before. It's the way that memes spread. And that's what we have to do if we're going to outcompete pseudoscience because Without that, the, the, when you hear what people's complaints are, their fears are, they are always told to you, just like Grant was saying in, in your podcast, they're always told to you in stories. And we can't combat people by telling them, no, your story's wrong. You just have to give them a new story <laughs> that outcompetes that one. Yeah. 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 And, and to do it in a way that's respectful of people, because we can all just, you know, easily say, oh, my God, you're you're so stupid. Like, again, it's like the conversation we had with Grant. It's like telling people they're stupid on the internet. Like it, it does no good. Like <laughs> people that are stupid in person does even worse. Um, but, but yes, to have, to, to be, to have those stories with you to then share and, and, and have them, you know, keep I mean, I think that's the power of what science moms have been right. Like that one on sunscreen. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times yeah. I've seen that spread around way outside of science moms, but they didn't have something. Right. See, and that, yeah. 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 So, I mean, that like, that's, I kind of view like what I'm doing as like this, like, you know, curating this place where this information can have a home and then hopefully, you know, go out to, to people who can learn something from it or might change their worldview a little bit, but to do it in a way that is, you know, respectful of people. And, um, and I don't know, you know, just, just hearing things from, from smart, relatable people, like the, the women that are in the film are, are intelligent, relatable moms, parents. Um, and, and yeah, and I think, 
to get that information from from different sources. And obviously, like what what you do is so important for that reason as well, because you're you're a person who is relating to other people and doing it in a way that that makes people feel comfortable, obviously, to have these conversations and and possibly, you know, change minds a little bit. So I kind of, I kind so of yeah, made I, a joke at the beginning when we were talking about, like, how do people react when they find out you're from Monsanto? If I'm on a plane um, and, yeah. you know, you start talking with somebody and they bring up food or how concerned they are or something, I want the fact that I work at Monsanto to come up because if we're having, mm-hmm. if they're like clearly open to, to chatting while we're on the plane, because what ends up happening almost invariably is people will eventually, if they start to feel that they can trust you, that they can ask these questions, they don't actually mm-hmm. show me anger. What they end up showing me is how tightly their fists are clenched together because they've been made to feel afraid. <laughs> and so yeah. the gift that anybody that understands agriculture or the safety of sunscreen or the value of, of vaccines is, is that you can say, I'm going to try and find a way to help you let go of those fists, like to, to un, unclench them. And that's why all of my conversations, I, I, almost every single one I've ever had, feels way, way better when we walk off the plane because they've let go of some amount of fear that somebody handed them in order for them to buy what they were selling. And that's what I love about this job is that it is really all about uh, helping people release that grip on fear that some other really bad person handed them. (laughs) (laughs) You had to think about what you were going to say there. I love it. I think, I think part, part of, or I mean, the entire issue behind it is just as a species, we are, prone to being paranoid about things that we don't like about paranoid about the unknown. It's you keep bringing up the plane. You know, I, I know for a fact that, you know, air, airplane travel is by far safer than, you know, me driving across the country. That's just a fact. And there's statistics that support that. But even then, you know, whenever I flew to New York to go to Nexus, like I had a little bit of nerves about it. And it's, it's partially because I, at least I think, because I'm, I'm not the one that's in control. I don't, because everybody thinks of themselves as, you know, some sort of low-level superhero that, you know, they're the exception to every rule. And in that situation on a plane, you're not in control. You're not, you're not the one flying it. And, you don't, I mean, you don't even see the pilot anymore. So you don't even know, you know, if this person, you know, looks, whatever that means, looks capable to, to fly a plane. So you, you just have this general fear of unknown. And that's, that's natural with everybody. And it's, it's how we evolved is to be afraid of things that we don't know, or, you know, we see something moving in a bush and we're afraid, naturally afraid of that because, you know, there might be, you know, a tiger there or something like that. And people who aren't afraid of the tiger in the bush get eaten by the tiger. And so part of, just like you said, part of it is, you know, just helping people overcome that, that fear of the unknown and moving them into the realm of what well, I have somewhat of a better understanding and even being receptive to that. And in what you just said, I mean, that's makes all the sense in the world is to, you know, to take control and shift the conversation to instead of being negative of, you know, well, I don't like this, that, the other, you know, to turn it into a positive conversation like that. I never really thought about the, the plane being, you know, fear of flying being something that would really help you relate to somebody else about that, that, that really your fear that any of the fears and we all have some irrational fear is a good way to place yourself in the shoes of a person that that has been convinced of the the dangers of things like pesticides on their food or their sunscreen or or vaccines or whatever that's a that's powerful i i will definitely uh use that to help frame up my my, my frame of mind well yeah and and even even with the plane like it you know you get turbulence or you get like a little bump especially you know as you're taking off or coming in for i i know when i landed at laguardia i was like man i we are really close <laughs> to, to all these all these buildings here like i it's and i don't know like in even as evidence based as i like to think i am with my it's like i still had you know that tinge of doubt of well <laughs> i hope we end up on the <laughs> runway here everyone has their thing and it's it's about i guess connecting like and understanding that everybody has the thing that they're afraid of and and yeah and like and it's people have a pretty real fear of of food which i mean it's it's hard to relate like to think about that sometimes as somebody who's not afraid of it but we you know i guess it's just about getting that whole like 
get the facts in as much of a human way as possible to them. Well, and there's so um, much, even, well, even with like, I think that, and there are so many people that are afraid of their food. And some of that path really comes about by feeling like I'm not doing the right thing. Like I know I could be buying some mm -hmm. kind of better quality or some kind of, and I remember the experience that I had um, when I was talking with, uh, it was a data scientist, but I really respect his opinion. And I, and I said, well, you buy organic, right? And he's like, no, never. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? But isn't it, isn't it better? And he's like, no, I, I mean, like it's not any safer or more. And like the, the fact that it, I literally before that point had never encountered a person that was willing to mm -hmm. say, I don't, I don't believe that organic is better. And here is why because it, you know the pesticides that they're using and they are using pesticides aren't any less toxic or and and like for me all of a sudden that made it so I was like oh my gosh not only is our food safe right but I'm not even not doing something I'm not doing something wrong by not buying this wrong, higher order right. thing which is the path to fear I I often watch that people think oh yeah, I'm doing the thing right. that's wrong and then they start sliding into should I be afraid and that's that how that ends up uh, propagating out into the system Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to be doing what's right, whatever that means, whether it's for themselves or their families. And, and again, it's, I think it does take people like this person who says to you, you know, like, yeah, I, I don't need to buy organic because, you know, whatever reasons it takes people like us also, I think saying that to others. I mean, I know I've said that to a lot of other parents, like, as I, cause I've had to, I've talked about what I'm doing, you know, like the whole science moms thing, whatever. And and at first they're kind of surprised, but then you give them reasons that make sense and you can see people's minds working a little bit and them thinking about it. Like, oh, maybe I, maybe I'm not, you know, doing the wrong thing if I buy this kind of food or it doesn't make me any better of a parent if I buy, you know, organic strawberries. Like it, it's, I don't know, just sharing our experiences too in that person to person. Way. And once somebody believes that you have the same values that they do and that you, you know, care about things similar to they, them, then all of a sudden their, their barometer on, is this a person trying to convince me of something is way, way lower, right? They, they're much more like, mm -hmm. Hey, this person's like me. I'm okay with hearing what they have to say, hearing their, their information. And maybe I could take that information on. It's when we come at people, I go talk to farmers a, a lot. And one of the pieces of advice that I'm always giving them is if you show up to a disagreement about um, the safety or quality of the food and you say, I'm a farmer, listen to me, they won't listen to you. Um, right. But if you show up and say, hey, I've got kids or I have a family, uh, you know, I drink water, I care about the environment, I love being outdoors, <laughs> then yeah. all of a sudden people are like, oh, you're like me and you're a farmer and I'm much more interested in hearing that. Yeah, you find you find that common common ground, and then work from there, as opposed to coming in like just ready ready to throw down. It took right? me a long that, time to figure out with that yeah. like shared values thing that Kevin's always talking about. I, I mean, I was always like, yeah, 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 shared values, but like when you start to realize that most of the opinions that people have is just virtue signaling to the rest of their friends of like, oh, hey, this is an opinion I heard from my friends, so I'm going to put this out there. And, and it's only, only when you realize that if you shoot at their ideas, you're not shooting at their ideas, you're shooting at their friends. Like that, that's when I was like, oh, Kevin's been right all along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, and, and yeah, Kevin's been right all along. <laughs> let's, that's, let's just put that out there into the world. <laughs> He's been a guy that, I mean... You know, I, I has really been an inspiration to me and and a mentor to me, just in how the this is a long run, right? It's not a sprint. There's no winning. It's just about staying around and being available to people. And that poor guy really got beat up by the Monsanto name and the fear that people have about that. And um, mm -hmm. you know that the the in the future, I hope we can learn from how the, the way that we um, structured the, the relationship that we had with him, we won't do in the future. We'll know how to make it so people cannot um, portray that in such a dark way. Because Kevin was buying sandwiches and coffee for students, and that got really turned around. But, you know, we all learned from 
seeing how resilient a person can be um, in the face of trying to share science with people that have been made to feel afraid. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a like really inspiring example, I think that, um, you know, just, you know, him continuing to just get such a strong, like passionate message out there, um, despite what happened. And, and obviously, like not showing signs of slowing down with that. I mean, it's I, yeah, I, I find it really, really inspiring. And it's, it's awesome that you have that relationship with him. And, and obviously, if he's taught you a lot in some ways, because and what you're doing is fantastic. So, you know, it's everybody sharing ideas, I think will make this whole message get out there even better. Um, That's why these like podcasts have been so important. I mean, the proliferation of skeptical media in the last five years has been probably one of the most important developments on pushing back on pseudoscience and snake oil salesmen that maybe has happened in the last 50 years, right? Like, it, it's yeah. the only thing for a long time they they spread their memes with no n- no problems and now the internet has an immune response system that when people share things all of a sudden bam the skeptics <laughs> yeah. are there you know and and kicking yeah. the immune yeah. system into high gear yeah well i guess it, like all of us just continuing to do our part right and i like that the immune system that is I have to give credit where credit is due. So the guy that told me that he didn't buy organic is the same guy Uh that coined that phrase to me. He was like, it's the internet's immune response system. His name is Rob Long and he goes by plantimals on Twitter. And he's this kind of uh, rough computer, uh, computer scientist, but, but a brilliant guy that's very aware of, of how people think about ideas. So I, I, I love that. I love that. Like all of us just being part of this immune system kicking it into gear that, that that's that's really cool i get to be the killer t-cells <laughs> you can be whatever you want in, in this immune system you you yeah take your pick <laughs> one of the questions i wanted to ask of course uh we always hear about super weeds and how glyphosate's causing uh all these super weeds but whenever you look at uh, other herbicides uh, that are used, uh, you see just an upward trend, you know, almost across the board or absolutely across the board of uh, resistance going up, especially like ALS inhibitors, uh, you know, just skyrocketed in the late 90s. Is Monsanto developing or or even other any other uh, biotech companies for that matter? Are they developing any sort of new type of products, you know, similar to glyphosate, but works obviously in a different different manner or, or how, you know, how do we, how do we deal with that moving forward? So weed resistance is a, is a very, is a fascinating concept. And uh, I think we can talk about it in terms of in the field. And then it's actually a good way to think, I think of um, the spread of pseudoscience, but, but to answer your first question, you know, about super weeds, super weeds is an excellent meme because it kind of plays off of this idea that people know that weeds or plants evolve, but sometimes they don't really have a full understanding of how that works. And so it kind of just is like, yes, yeah, super weeds, they're evolving to resist and they're, they're, you know, they're super, right? So people have in their minds that these are like, you know, 80 feet tall and, and you know, leg. but that- Like some like B-movie sci-fi something exactly. like crazy. That's right, yeah. right. Where they're like, you know, yeah. if you're walking too close to the field, it'll grab you and drag you in. But in fact, <laughs> the things that they're so I mean and, I mean that yeah it in to 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 that on that on that train of thought little known facts a little chop of horse actually a documentary <laughs> there's no way as a child I could have watched that movie I would have had nightmares I was very sensitive right um, but, but so so super weeds like let's talk about what that is that is if you have an herbicide like um, Roundup which its primary ingredient is glyphosate and glyphosate will actually basically stop the the ability of the plant to turn sunlight into food. And we were able to create a gene that offered an alternate pathway that basically when glyphosate touches corn or soy that has that gene in it, it says, hey, don't stop the production of food. Just keep going. It's totally fine. But the weeds don't have that alternate pathway. They don't have that gene added in. And so what we um, what ends up happening is if you go out over several million acres and you put out um, Roundup out there, eventually you'll find a weed that had a random mutation that, can, that, that also has an alternate pathway or a way to be able to resist that, that um, herbicide. But this isn't just with 
Roundup. This is with anything that you would go do to kill weeds, even including if you sent kids out or, or young adults out to go pull weeds, what you would end up finding is that the weeds would mutate so that they would look more and more like the plants that are out there, right? Because you're, for, you're selecting for which plant is not supposed to be here. And if there's one that ends up looking more like a soybean plant, chance, well then the chances that somebody's gonna pull that is low, right? So resistance happens just as a matter of course. And so what we do to answer your question, what do we do to prevent our, our products from having resistance? So the first one is, you wanna make sure that your um, farmers have many options, right? They're not only using Roundup, but Roundup's really effective and we know that and farmers are using it a lot. So one of the things that we did was develop a dicamba resistant crop. So dicamba is another type of pesticide and it works very differently than Roundup. And it's dicamba has been an herbicide that's been out there killing weeds for a long time, but we've not had herbicide resistant, dicamba resistant um, uh, plants out there. And so um, now we do, we have the genes out there, they've been approved, the seeds are okay for use. However, Dicamba is not right now um, approved for use um, by, by farmers to be able to go spray over their crops. And so that's still being re regulated by the EPA. So I think by the next growing season, but I don't know, I don't have insight into the EPA, we'll be seeing farmers using a mixture of either glyphosate or dicamba because the odds that a weed would be able to resist both Roundup and dicamba is really low. It's not impossible but it's a lot lower than if it were just trying to resist one. Was that too long of an answer? I, I feel like I kind of drew no. no, and I think that that stuff, like a lot of people don't know that answer, you know? And I, as much, like, this is the kind of info I think that getting it out there is is important, right? Because most most people just would hear the word super weeds and stop at that. Well, yeah. It, Honestly, you know, yeah, like I, that. that's right. it. Well, and, and if you guys, so I have another metaphor that kind of relates to skepticism, if you don't, so, yeah. so one it, of yeah. the things that I often, when I'm trying to describe to farmers or scientists about how did the activists become so effective, right? Like, how is it that they got their yeah. ideas to spread? And one of the things that I often say is activists that are trying to, to do a narrative work like this weed called Palmer amaranth. So some, sometimes people call it Palmer pigweed. If you're out in Indiana, everybody knows what this mm -hmm. is, right? This is a terrible weed. It grows to be about eight to 10 feet tall and it has 200,000 <laughs> seeds on it. Now there are weeds that have more seeds than Palmer amaranth, but Palmer's real trick is that it has a huge amount of genetic variation within its seeds. It mutates a lot. And so when that seed, when that weed grows up and goes to seed and it spreads out those 200,000 seeds, they have a much higher likelihood of being able to resist herbicides than just maybe just like a dandelion or something like that. And I, the reason I make this comparison uh, is because when you think about a corporation, you know, you have a group of people that get together, they're on a communications team. They work together every day. It's probably a team of five or 10 people. They get to a conference room. They say, hey, let's think about putting this out. Hey, we need to combat this. Let's write a blog post, right? That's one strategy for trying to stop that, right? But it's a monolithic solution, right? It takes a long time. Whereas the activists are out yeah. there and they're like gish galloping, right? They're throwing all different kinds of ideas. Yeah. This is all of right, it, yeah. everywhere, blah, 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 blah. And they find whichever one works, whichever one passes the public scrutiny and kind of attaches to their values, as soon as they find that hitting, then they're like, hey, the bees are dying, the bees are dying, the bees are dying, the bees are dying. <laughs> right? And then, or, and, and, it, and it's out there in so many, in so many forms, right? right? Like just there. And as uh, I, I watched a really good Veritasium the other day, which talks about the ease with which the human mind understands things is how many times you've seen it. So if you keep hearing something, eventually it becomes like, oh yeah, we all just know that. And that's their great strength. They operate like Palmer Amaranth. Um, and, and the only way to combat pseudoscience and all of pseudoscience is to also decentralize in order to come up with your memes that have lots of different variation and find out what works. I think that's a fantastic comparison. I, wow. Yeah. With, uh, weeds or anything like that. And one of the, one of the top articles was, a uh, the, the headline Palmer Amaranth confirmed in 17 Indiana counties. So that, uh, <laughs> yeah, man, you can't you can't go to Indiana and start saying that word, man. People give you dirty looks. <laughs> like there, is, I mean, there. 
it, like the way this is, it's like they're diagnosing somebody with cancer. Like, like all oh, shit, guys. Like we have like seventeen of our counties have this, and uh, I mean, I guess we're just we'll just hand those counties over to Kentucky now. I guess <laughs> I I don't I don't think they're going to do that, but it is pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I like. This has been a really, really neat interview, Vance. Like, thank you for. Hey, thanks for having yeah, me, just, guys. I like, was really covering honest. covering all di- all different bases because I, I like I just like how much what you're doing really does connect to the whole kind of skeptic and combating pseudoscience type of movement as well. Because I, I guess that is what you're doing. Because the whole the GMO fears and the food fears. I mean, it's just another part of the pseudoscience that needs to be, you know, just re-examined and have people given the correct information to make better decisions. Um, but do you, do you have any, do you have any last words of wisdom or anything or anything that you, that we haven't talked about that you want to share with our listeners? One of the most interesting things that's happened over the last probably year um, is the interconnection between different tribes and I know um, we hear a lot about tribalism and that in skeptics world, you know, that, that kind of is viewed as a bad word, but like, that's what we do, right? We all separate out into our own networks, into our clusters of people where we have cultural norms and ways of thinking about things. I think one of the most interesting things is we're watching agriculture get connected with the skeptics and we're watching the skeptics get connected with the eco-modernists and we're watching the eco-modernists get connected with the science moms. And that is how you create networks that are out competing the other, the other ways of thinking about things, right? The alternative medicine. And, um, and, and so I think it's really great and important that you guys have such a wide variety of guests. And I hope that people that are listening, that are writing blog posts or out on Twitter, they're spending time trying to find people from these other tribes to share information because these are tribes that have a lot in common new audiences and new ways of thinking about things. So I'm, I'm really, really glad to see that you guys have been so diligent about putting out new episodes and having a variety of guests. It's really, I think it's great. I think it's the best thing for civilization to have, to have things like this building and growing. I, I, w- I would agree that we, Natalie and I are the best things for civilization. I would agree with that. <laughs> Civilization's doomed then. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, this, was, this was absolutely great. And I definitely, definitely appreciate you uh, taking uh, the time to, to talk to us here. Um, and so if people want to reach out to you or talk to you, where would they go and how would they do that? Um, probably two things to say on that. My favorite thing to do is Twitter. I love it when people reach out. I love it when they ask me tough questions. I love it when they correct the way that I'm saying things and just when they're interested and share things. And then the other thing is if you have a group of people um, that you think are interested and they want to have genuine conversations about agriculture or about science or about biotechnology, um, I would love to connect you with somebody from Monsanto. It could be me or it could be a scientist. It could be um, anybody, a farmer. So if you have audiences, just connect with me on Twitter and, uh, and we'll, we'll what try is your and Twitter? Uh, my Twitter is very simple. It's Vance Crow at Vance Crow. And my last name is spelled C R O W E. And we'll have, we'll have a link to um, Vance's Twitter in the show notes. Love the Internet this week comes to us from a member of the Science Enthusiasts Facebook group, which I guess let me pause for a second and say that probably by the time this podcast is out, that group will have grown to about probably over 10,000 members. It's so, already over oh, 9,000. So let's. You don't get that reference. That's okay. No, That's you, okay. you, 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 sent, you sent that to me in a GIF once. I'm pretty it's, sure. And I don't know what it is. The, the video is the video is better. So, we'll talk about it later. Okay. We'll talk about it when you're older. Okay, that's fine. Um, it'll be 10,000 probably plus members by the time this episode comes out. So just, I guess, want to say that that's probably another reason why we love the internet. Because it's a, you know, when the comment sections aren't dumpster fires, it's a good group of people. So, um, <laughs> like, They yeah. are often dumpster fires. Yeah. But, anyway. but, but here's the thing. They also yield things like a whole comment thread on why we love the internet and we we got many submissions um 
I, I think that that my name was one of the reasons why people love the internet. Me, okay, that's, but that's, but yeah, that's yeah. a sad person, right? Obviously. Um, but anyways, this submission comes from Mike, and I had told him that we were going to use it, and we are using it. Um, it is Nicholas Cage's face on things. That is. Yeah, it's a Facebook. It's a Facebook page dedicated to photoshopping Nicholas Cage's face on different most it's mostly on other people yeah uh sometimes sometimes works of art uh for instance i'm looking at the mona lisa <laughs> right now where well. somebody has and, and this is like expertly done um <laughs> place nicholas, nicholas cage's face on the mona lisa <laughs> in giving the you don't say uh, face that of course he is he is famous for so it definitely uh the the painting takes a different tone <laughs> Well, and I and I have up on my computer right now him on like a sea turtle, um, <laughs> and he looks super excited to be swimming in the ocean, <laughs> like really, really excited. It is, yeah. I mean, it, it's his face on on a sea turtle, or is it? A, I don't know if it's a turtle or a tortoise. Does I, it? It's I, all. I'm not looking at it, but so it, it it has a shell, and I'm it's sure somebody yeah. will, somebody will find it. Oh, it's and, then, and then right underneath is him as Buzz Lightyear from Toy Story, and I don't know why I just <laughs> think this one is so funny, and I like I just saw it for the first time, so um that's that. I mean, this is this is the, really I mean, really good. Thank you, Mike, for this. It is it is it is it is the most internet thing in the history of the internet. It, it really is. It's like, let's, let's, I mean, it's Nicolas Cage, right? Who just as himself is, is a thing. And then <laughs> here's, here's what they shared today. Uh, they, they took the Bill Nye, like Bill Nye show logo where it normally says Bill Nye has his head like turning around, but they repl- of course replaced Bill Nye's face with Nick Cage's face. And it says Nick Cage on either side. <laughs> and it's oh yeah, there it is. Nick- Nick Cage, I can't finish. The, the, the science. Nick, Nick Cage, instead of the science guy, it's Nick Cage, the science mage. And, but, but the face <laughs> in it, it's like, it's all, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. But it is, it's, it's, such, it's such an internet-y thing. It's like. <laughs> now, you know? And now I'm never not going to be able to think Nick Cage, the science mage. <laughs> <laughs> but they also they have they have the the cover of pulp fiction where it has i think it's uma thurman right uh, uh yeah she's laying there on the, in the cover of, of the film and <laughs> it's nick cage's face somebody is taking his face and put it on the the the, the classic like douchebag hats guy meme somebody has placed it on that and it, it's not even like it's like poorly like this is like very good photoshop job <laughs> like that they did like the tones match each other you can't tell like where they like blurred it up like very well like each Same. one is very well like I, I should say like especially like the most recent ones are all like very well done another one with uh, the unfortunate face beyonce made at the at the super bowl a few years ago <laughs> they put his face on it instead and it oh <laughs> oh, and, I don't know. People must like uh, must like Toy Story because there's another one that's Buzz Lightyear and Woody from Toy Story. And his um, face is on both. And, and his face is on both, just like his face is on every member of, <laughs> I believe it's One Direction. The <laughs> <laughs> and it just and the the um, caption just says Cage Direction. <laughs> so. And then I have to say, and this one, we'll, I'll, we'll link to this one because the Photoshop job is not that good on this, but it's like, you know, somebody's like, I have, I have like, how many Nicolas Cages to, I have five Nicolas Cages to make. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to spend too much time on the Photoshop. I'm just going to make this happen. So, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's the level of quality you come to, come to yeah. expect with anything Nick Cage touches or not or just is is part of but but i yeah like cage direction i i like that one i i mean i i like so many of these but that just oh (laughs) there's another fan submission that he's all of the teletubbies (laughs) like i mean uh 
Yeah, he is. He is. He's he's all of them. And God really does work in mysterious ways. Yeah. And I'm just sending you the Teletubby (laughs) one now because like, I don't know, make that the backdrop on your computer background. And have nightmares forever. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to have nightmares forever, regardless. I mean, like, look, look at that. That, look is, at that. that is horrifying <laughs> on because, so many levels. Because honestly, like, I find those things scary as is. So then right. Nicolas Cage's face does not do the Teletubbies any justice. Like, it makes them fucking terrifying. So um, good work uh, whenever fans submitted that. Um, I also just like that this, like, this page exists, but then there are people doing, like, fan art for, oh, oh yeah oh yeah or essentially a like meme page so yeah it's the internet man bringing people together bringing nicholas cage's face on everything and on that note uh, thank you for joining us for this week's episode if you enjoyed listening please consider leaving us a five-star ratings on itunes and if you have comments suggestions complaints or just want to let us know how much you hate us you can contact us at podcast at a science enthusiast.com uh, you can also find our full podcast ar- archive at a science enthusiast.com slash category slash podcasts and follow the podcast page on facebook follow natalie on facebook as skeptical parenting myself as in science enthusiast or you follow both of us on twitter and if you also also enjoyed the show please consider checking out our patreon page at patreon.com slash tse podcast to get access to premium content extended interviews outros that we screwed up uh, and have to re-record five or six or 15 times uh and other goodies there we understand that not everybody can afford to financially contribute to the show and that's okay but you can help us out a lot just by sharing and talking about the show and telling your friends about us uh but if you can just like james michael carlotta another michael and alice have done we would totes be thanks to you i don't know that that's good enough that's good enough is that what the kids say totes thanks i'm gonna go with i'm I'm gonna go with no but i'm gonna say it's okay i'm trying to do the most millennial thing that i can do and be hip with the kids yeah well good try worthy (laughs) that there was an attempt there there was absolutely an attempt and that's all that's all that matters you get a participation medal for that outro well everybody does everyone does i'm a millennial damn it and i deserve my fucking participation award Absolutely. So I showed up and that's, I mean, they, they say that's half the battle is just showing up, right? Show, showing up is half the battle. Knowing half is half the battle, the battle right? Yeah. 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 Another, this will, this is going to have to be, I don't even want to, we'll talk about it after the show. Uh, this is why I love the internet next week. And it is, it is, it, it's going to be a series of videos, but it is so great. And if that's not enough of a tease, we're going to have Alice Seichen on the show next week. She is a co-founder of secularaction.org. So I am definitely looking forward to that. So in the meantime, Natalie, go ahead and hit us with a quote. Okay. The world is a dangerous place to live, not because of the people who are evil, but because of the people who don't do anything about it. And that is Albert Einstein. So um, can I just say, like, vote for Hillary? Is that okay? (sighs) Yeah, maybe. Well, we've we've gone on record saying a vote's not a, a, a vote for that's not for Hillary is a vote for Trump. Yeah. And so could and hashtag never Trump. Can we endorse that? Yeah. I, mean, I don't know, yeah. but not Trump. But positive note, I saw there was an article on five thirty eight that came out today, and of course this yeah. is August fourth that we're recording uh, that puts uh, Hillary winning at ninety two percent. Yeah. With almost double the amount of electoral college votes and 10% went on about 10% went on popular votes. So that is, that's something I relaxed to, a little bit to be, to be optimistic, cautiously optimistic, at least about, yeah. Uh, right. I mean, we're, I'm, we're still gonna, still gotta keep harping. I feel like on that, uh, that every person needs to vote even if they read yeah, things. And if, that and if, see if it's not even, yeah. if, and if not even to, to go against, to go against Trump, like go against Mike Pence. Like he's a fucking evolution denier. Yeah. Stood in front of Congress and tried when he was a representative and tried to disprove evolution. Yeah. There is a video. Yeah. Where so, he's trying to disprove evolution. Yeah, I saw. Yeah, that that was out today, or at least I saw it today. Um, but yes. So again, vote. We we are all. I don't. <laughs> well, thank you, Natalie, for joining me this week. It's been a pleasure. And thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. 
The music you heard in this podcast was written and performed by Adam Johnson and was used with his permission. You can contact Adam at adamjohnsondc at gmail.com. This podcast contains language that is not appropriate for children. But if your child isn't a child, they deserve full body autonomy. And what they do with their free time is none of your fucking damn business in the first place. Oh, we don't want to put the fucking in there. (laughs) We don't want to put the fucking in there. That's what happens when you just read the teleprompter. (laughs) 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 Oh, that That could go at the end of the episode. That makes me want to watch Anchorman now. Anyway, anyway, it's, that is what it's late. Just it's late. Okay. Let's get this out. Let's get this out. Let's get it out. I don't, okay, okay. That's what okay. he said. Okay, okay.